following is a member of the Growler Media Podcast Network. Find out more at growlermedia.com. Ming's not unbeatable. With all his men, he couldn't even kill Flash. Gordon's alive! Welcome to Flash Gordon Minute, presenting your hosts... From Minute of Darkness and the Cosmic Geppetto Podcast, Brad. And introducing your intrepid explorer of Planet Mongo, Eric. So this is uh, an amazing episode of uh, Flash Gordon Minute. Eric, how are you doing tonight? I am doing great, Brad. And uh, we have a very special guest on this episode as we go a little bit, little bonus episode for all your listeners. We have a member of the cast of Flash Gordon. He plays one of the two ill-fated pilots at the beginning of the movie. He also plays an ill-fated astronaut in Superman 2. He plays the ill-fated Luke's gunner in a little rarely heard of movie called The Empire Strikes Back. He also a is a published film. author. Yeah, a little, little film. You might have heard of it. He's a published author of the book Backstory in Blue, Ellington at Newport 56. He has written blogs for StarWars.com. He appears at sci-fi conventions and is active on Twitter and has his own website, Dax Tapcast. He also is in a, was in a band with Loud and Wainwright. And on all of that, he also is a national security expert with more than 25 years in the industry, holding a master's degree in international affairs. Please welcome to our show, John Morton. Hey, may the force be with you. <laughs> you guys have done your research. Oh, my oh, yes, Lord. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Just a cautionary tale to everybody. Don't come fly with me. <laughs> Ill-fated is not the is not the word, I guess. It's, uh, you know, ill-starred. Who knows, man? Yeah, not a, not a thing to do. Don't fly with Dak. Flash Gordon, Empire Strikes Back, Superman 2. We'll start with Flash Gordon, but, yeah, um, three movies, all that came out in 1980, and all three, John, you play a pilot that dies in different ways. Yeah, yeah, I didn't do so well in outer space, eh? <laughs> in three very popular, uh, well, I know Flash Gordon is sort of a, like a little bit more cultish, but, uh, you know, three very popular, I mean, Empire Strikes Back has just gained and gained more love every, as time goes on, and it's pretty much considered, to many people, it's just considered the greatest movie of all time. I know so many people that it's not just their favorite Star Wars film, but it's just their favorite film. To have really cool roles in all three of those. I, did, eight, did 1980 feel like a good year at the time? Well, actually, uh, we filmed all that stuff in 1979. Part of the Superman 2 footage was filmed in actually 1977. Um, there's an interesting kind of backstory to all of that for anybody that's into kind of the business aspects of, uh, of filmmaking. But yeah, the uh, Superman 2 and Superman 1 were being filmed simultaneously in 77 with Richard Donner as the director. They kind of fell afoul with uh, Marlon Brando, who worked out that uh, he was getting paid a million dollars and they were going to get two films out of him. So uh, as I recall, he took him to court and uh, they had to suspend all of the uh, footage, that, uh, shooting any of the footage for Superman 2 um, until a contract was renegotiated. And by that time, uh, Donner went off the project and Richard Lester, who you all would know, uh, was the director of the two Beatles films, he came in and completed Superman 2 uh, in 1979. 
so an interesting sort of story that uh, kind of encapsulates what happened. But uh, yeah, there were two directors on the film. The establishing shots I did with Dick Donner in 77, uh, I think around September. And then uh, the close-ups, uh, I came back to Pinewood and did them with Richard Lester. It was right after Empire Strikes, sometime in, in, uh, in mid-79. Gosh, maybe two, three years ago, they released like a Richard Donner cut of Superman 2. Because if memory serves him from my understanding, it got pretty contentious when uh, Lester took over the film from Donner and uh, the producers uh, maybe didn't have the best relationship with uh, some of the cast members after that happened. And you know, there's a lot of different stories uh, about it. But uh, let, me, let me quiz you on that. Was that the Donner cut for Superman 2? Or Superman one. I think it, was it was two. Superman two. Yeah, I think it was Superman yeah. two. Huh. Okay, I didn't realize that was out there. Quite honestly, I haven't followed the kind of the uh, you know the provenance of Superman, the Superman series. Uh, so I'm not really savvy on being able to talk about that, other than just memory. But that's interesting. I didn't realize he had, he had shot that much footage of the Superman two parts. He certainly didn't get the dialogue scenes uh, for me, the close-ups. Uh, that was that was Richard Lester. So he had he had the establishing shots of us on the moon. Uh, I remember that very vividly. The close-up work uh, that we did when I was talking to John Ratzenberger uh, was all done with Richard Lester. Oh my God, John! That was Cliff. That's right. Yeah, yeah. He's the the famous "What's a curl" line in Superman too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was Cliffy. And so, another but, actor I, who was a friend, Shane Rimmer, uh, was his sidekick down in Houston. Uh, John I knew very, very well. He, he was part of the North American actor contingent that was in London in the mid-'70s. And he and I worked together uh, on A Bridge Too Far at the same time, and that's when I first got to meet him. He was already well-established in London as a, uh improvisational uh, comedian uh, with another actor named Ray Hassett. They had a uh, small two-man theater company called Sal's Meat Market, and they were brilliant. I mean, he was a great improviser, you know, just a natural comedian. Great guy. You know what, since we're talking about Superman 2 anyway, let's, let's, let's stick with Superman 2, and then we'll get to Flash. So you play Nate, the astronaut. You mentioned the, the different shoots for the, the, the close-ups and, and the establishing shots. In the, in, at the end, when uh, Nan is crushing your poor character and, and, and is destroying the ship, is that you in the ship as it's being crushed? And if so, how do you rehearse you know, for, for a scene like that? And how many times can you even shoot something like that because the set is being demolished? <laughs> that was me. And, uh, you know, people have always asked, you know, if I was uh, at any time uh, unnerved by some of the stunts and the whatevers that I, I did in the various films. That was the only time when it was uh, a little tricky. Uh, yeah, that was, that was a one take. And the crushing was done by two forks of a forklift truck that was behind and off uh, off camera. And uh, I was inside uh, in my spacesuit in there. These forks were coming down and just banging on the top of the thing, and it was crumpling all around me. And I just, uh, you know, this the the it was, you know, I I just had to kind of give it up to say, hey, look, I hope you guys know what you're doing because. <laughs> You know, there's nothing between me and those two forks except for some very uh, crumbleable uh, uh, metal. And, uh, yeah, that was, you know, one and done, baby. They had to use so many practical effects. Cause... There were squibs uh, placed all around, uh, which are little uh, explosives. 
uh, that are on a you know on a network, and the special effects guys were blowing those up uh, you know on the dashboard uh, all around me, and this this stuff was you know the forks were just coming down full full bore. I mean it was noisy. That was that was pretty hairy. I, I got <laughs> Speaking of of pretty, you have a, a I, I've got to call out my favorite line of yours in that movie when you're seeing Sarah Douglas uh, float <laughs> across the screen. You go, mighty pretty. well i I think as i remember uh dick lester was saying you know you've been awake for 40 days and uh (laughs) you know you're you're kind of like in this dream like days he was always going for the comedy so uh (laughs) that's the way that's the way i played it yeah i think that was um and lester took i think some unnecessarily heat um because of the way people get when there's director changes. He was a slapstick guy, and you could see that in Superman 2 with the scene where the the villains are using their super breath, and all of a sudden they went some with some slapstick comedy. And even in the next Superman movie, the last Lester directed from start to finish, where the first five minutes was some very uh, Pratt fallish. So yeah, he, he he was a comedy director. And yes, he was. I was in another film with him, a Sean Connery film called Cuba. I did that in seventy eight, seventy nine. So I'd worked with him on uh, out in Spain for two months, and uh, I saw him, you know, looking at every opportunity, you know, for a comedic uh, aspect. Yeah, he, he liked that. He had a good sense of humor. So I guess we we, we got to talk about Flash. I, I got to say one more thing before I move to Flash, and then we'll get to Flash. But, John, I, that is such an awesome quaff they gave you uh, for an astronaut in Superman 2. That is some uh, hairstyle for an astronaut to have. If you've been up there on the moon for 40 days, that's very impressive. They, they pasted uh, that beard onto me. They said, grow a beard, and so I had stubble. And so I had the resin put on every day when we were doing those shoots, and I had this kind of scraggly beard, and there it was. I don't remember what the hair looked like, because I think it, I was it, wearing a baseball cap. Yeah, it's like the right side, it. like the hair on like the right side of your face is like coming down, it, uh, and like the left side's not, so it's like a very stylish, <laughs> stylistic do. <laughs> I have to take a look at that. But I do. Rem- I remember the beard. I don't remember the hair. The hairstyle. Did I ever have my my uh, baseball cap off? I yeah. Remember. Uh, I. Uh, you know. Now that we're talking, I can't. I, I watched it a few days ago, and I can't remember. But I know the hair was coming <laughs> out at some point, though. <laughs> yeah, a friend of mine years ago used to say, "You're. You know, you have a style about you that's fastidiously slovenly." So that, uh, <laughs> that's real pitch. Yeah, I like it. Well, we've talked a lot on the show, John, um, about the, the stories that have come out since the movie was made about there was a lot of figure it out as we go along. I mean, the director, Mike Hodges, has been very candid about that, that he just every day he showed up and just like, you know, let's just see what we can do. I mean, in the scenes that you're in, did you get a sense of that atmosphere of just like, let's just, I don't know, let's, let, let's just make it up and see what happens? Yes. Um, it was a little casual. I don't honestly, I didn't have a lot of time on that, uh, on that film. Uh, Star Wars, for example, I was on the set every day for four weeks. So I got more of a sense of the vibe, uh, of the, um, of what was going on, uh, day to day. I don't remember showing up, uh, for more than maybe two days. It could have been a week. Um, I tell you, the, the thing about Dino De Laurentiis uh, was he was in a 
in a mode of, of doing films in different places and getting away from studios. So I'm not sure where all of the Flash Gordon work was done, but uh, the soundstage that we used was actually uh, down in a place called West Byfleet, which is southwest of London, and it wasn't really a soundstage. It was a huge aircraft hangar of the British Aircraft Corporation uh, right off the main railroad tracks that ran from Waterloo Station down to Portsmouth uh, on the south coast. It was a large, very large aircraft hangar. You can see it still, or at least, you know, in those days you could see it from the, the, the train tracks. It was a civilian place. Where they had the uh, DC-3 or whatever, you know, mock-up uh, was in one corner of this. Uh, and then in another area, they were training the uh, Hawkmen, you know, uh, with their aerial kind of aerobatics and what have you. So you had uh, spotters, you know, cables and what have you, and these acrobatic, you know, Hawkmen just flying all around doing their uh, flips and, and what have you while we were setting up our shot. Uh, and then Brian Blessed would show up, kind of, uh, you know, make an appearance, and they'd be shooting elsewhere or setting up uh, other sets. So it was um, catch as catch can, to be sure. I guess you could say that, uh, at least. But, but, you know, I can't honestly go into any much more detail on what perhaps was happening at other times. Because, as I say, my impressions only came from maybe two two or three or four days work. I, I you know, I wanna say I, I had a a week's um commitment and I think I was used for maybe two days while they were setting it up and doing reversals and whatnot. There well, there wasn't really that much to do, really. It was a quick scene, pretty straightforward. Do you remember it, where in the shooting schedule that week was? Was it early, middle, late in the shooting schedule? You would know the history better than I, but I'm very certain I can tell you that that was in about August of uh, 1979. So you, t you tell me where that fit. Oh, puh. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm, ver I'm very certain about the time. I think it was, uh, I want to say it was August. You found the blind spot in our research. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So when you, and I'm always curious I, about know, this. If I, were, if I were to guess, I would say it was probably early. Yeah, I, I don't know where they, where else they 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 did their studio work. Because um, right after that, of course, that's when he set up down in Wilmington, North Carolina. You know, he was trying to set up his own sort of studio outside of the system. Uh, mm -hmm. So, if you recall, around that time, that's where he had uh, he eventually went. This is De Laurentiis. Eventually went to North Carolina, to, to Wilmington, which you know ran as a studio for years. What I'm always curious about, you know, you show up, you, you, you do work for a couple of days, and your scenes sort of set up all the action and motion. Um, but, you know, do you, at the time, did you, you, know, you sort of viewed it as a job. You were a working actor. You know, it was a job, and, I, you know, I sometimes find it fascinating where you talk to actors who are associated with films, and they don't even watch the movies they're in. Did did you watch the movie afterwards? It, did, and what was your thoughts? Because it's, it's, a, it's a zany movie. You know, did you know you were doing something crazy at the time? And what was your thoughts the first time you saw the film? What I remember is is we felt that it was going to be somewhat campy. That was going to be the tone. So, I mean, you had these, these amazing characters like Brian Blessed, uh, who 
is a larger-than-life guy. I mean, he's a, he's a real character and very accomplished. I didn't know much about uh, Melody Anderson uh, and Sam, of course. Uh, you know, I mean, he was kind of plucked from, uh, I guess, uh, some casting call in uh, in L.A. I think he was a Marine. Uh, so they were they were they were kind of brought in to the U.K. to do those shots, and in, in, in the film. So nobody really knew too much about it. Now, Billy Hootkins, who was another dear friend of mine, uh, where, where, you know, I crashed the plane into into his, uh, <laughs> his laboratory. I mean, he, he was a great comic actor and a wonderful raconteur and very much, uh, you know, a, a very visible spirit on the scene in London at that time. So, you, you, you know, you, you had a kind of a chemistry that was there that was suggesting, you know, it was going to be a, a film of that, of that kind. Uh, and then, of course, you know, with the Queen soundtrack and all of that, that, you know, that was, uh, you know, another sense that uh, it was going to be special. I, I worked on the Rocky Horror Show, so I, you know, I was very attuned to all this kind of stuff and thought, hey, that, that's that's kind of fun. I did not actually see it uh, in the U.K. By that time I'd come, come back to the States, I had a film that was... Uh, in development out in L.A. that uh, I'd scripted, which unfortunately didn't ever get made. But that brought me back to the United States. And when everything went south in uh, Hollywood, I came back and set up in, in New York and started working in theater and, and writing plays in New York. So but, so I, I didn't see it until it was... Uh, I, I didn't see it in, in the U.K. I saw it in, uh, in New York and thought, hey, you know, this is, this is a fun piece of work. Now you mentioned Color, uh, colorful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 We, we talk colorful. about the yeah we talk about the colors a lot. That just it's incredible the the colors uh, of this movie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was a real uh, visual feast. Oh yeah, yeah. You and mentioned I just, Sam. Uh, and, I, and, and having seen the Hawkman training, I mean, I, I, I that was my favorite stuff in there. I mean, uh, I thought that was good. You know, that was you know it was just inspired. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, Sam Jones, and you know we we talked a lot about yeah this was his big break. He had been in one movie and then been on the dating game uh, prior to being in Flash Gordon. And in the scene that he has with you, you know, you're having some turbulence, and he comes in and he says, "Oh, it might be smoother higher up." And we joked about this that it comes across as, "Oh, you know, here's this football player telling the pilots how to fly the plane." But his his <laughs> the, the way that Sam Jones plays the character Flash is just so. Honest and pure, you, you just you just like oh, it's just being helpful. You, you don't you don't think anything negative about it. So, you know, no, what what no. sense did you have working with Sam? You know, did you get that sense from him? Uh, you know, I didn't I didn't see him at the time as uh, an accomplished actor. I mean, r- r- you know, remember, you know, those of us that were in London, we we took our theatrical theatrical you know acting very seriously, and you know the the stars or the people that you know came over. You know, from the states, you know, they are either well known, like you know Robert Redford, or they were unknowns. That you know, so they they didn't have a, a track record that we could really assess. Do you know what I'm saying? I took him at face value for what he was, and uh, you know, he seemed like a, a genuine guy that you know had a, uh, you know, was obviously an athlete, good-looking man. Oddly enough, I've got to know him better on the circuit uh, since. Uh, you know, it was uh, I didn't realize he would, had been in the Marine Corps, and uh, of course since. He's been out of show business. He, he's been working executive protection stuff uh, out in California, uh, going into Mexico and uh, Hurricane Katrina. He was he was down there, so we had a sort of a mutual interest in uh, in kind of you know matters to do with homeland security and law enforcement that uh, 
was actually, you know, quite a surprise for me, for I guess both of us to gather. But yeah, no, he's. I gotta say that, that on a personal level, uh, he has much more gravitas now than he than I remember him having back in 1979. You know, he's a we, he's a powerful man. We've heard a little bit about that. Where um, we've we're lucky enough to have a previous guest who had a chance to to meet Mr. Jones and saying. For, well, first off, you, you sort of get an advantage of when you get into your 40s or your 50s. Uh, you, you, you get a little – some lines on your face, and that adds a little uh, character. And also, he's – notice how much Sam Jones, um, like, watches his diet. He's, he's, he's bigger. Yeah, he's, uh, he's, he's much more solid. He was, he was a well-built guy uh, back then. Uh, but now he's, he's, he's filled out quite a lot, and uh, he, he's very – you know, he's, he's fit. Yeah, he's he's a, he's an imposing character, I must say, and to his credit, good for him. <laughs> he's, had an, he's had an he's had an interesting life. Yeah, if you ever get him on, you'll you'll you, he'll tell you some fascinating stories about uh, you know being down in uh, in New Orleans uh, doing some protection work, you know, in the Hurricane Katrina response, and then you know, protecting executives going into uh, northern Mexico. That's where I think he does most of his his work now. Flash Gordon is out there on the planet, man. <laughs> it's just amazing with um, with Flash Gordon. You have uh, so, so many actors, including yourself, who oh, okay, they played this, and he was the pilot, or he was Flash, or you know, or you know, Brian Blessed, who. It, actually, so many people who have had such fascinating lives on top of it, and you know, Brian Blessed, good lord, he's climbing Everest and <laughs> man, a larger than life character. We, we've said it looks like Brian Blessed actually downplays it for that movie because he's such an amazing <laughs> character. Yeah. Well, I, I remember him. He, he had a wonderful role in I, Claudius, uh, which was a British uh, TV series uh, based on the Robert Graves novels and, uh, you know, about uh, Rome. And mm-hmm. he was uh, Augustus Caesar. <laughs> he was great. And there were some great actors in that. You know, John Hurt, oh. what's her name, who was Peter O'Toole's wife. Uh, she's on the circuit. Uh, yeah, well, what's kind of <laughs> interesting is you run into a lot of these people uh, doing the convention circuits that really you either knew or knew of uh, back in the 70s that are that are out connecting with fans. It's it's so much fun. It's it's almost like being in films, uh, you know, when you run into people you knew or, you know, wanted to see, uh, you know, when you go uh, on, you know, on a set or, you know, find yourself on location. You bond with them for about five days when you're out there, uh, wherever it might be, Amarillo or, uh, you know, Atlanta or what have you. And then uh, you may see them again, you know, a year or two later in Santa Fe. I mean, it's 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 a it's a great it's a it's a wonderful wonderful kind of circuit to be on it's a circus a traveling circus of the and, of the uh, three uh big 1980 movies that we've been talking about who are some of the other actors that you tend to see uh, more of on the circuit well the ones that uh that you know that you know julian glover for example he's mm-hmm. out there who, who uh was in star wars with us uh obviously that what comes to mind are the star wars people garrick hagan uh, who mm-hmm. played Big Star Glider. Uh I think Bill Hootkins, when he was alive, was out there. Uh, Sarah Douglas has mm-hmm. uh, has appeared. Uh, Jack O'Halloran, who was mm-hmm. uh, uh, with her. Uh, oh, uh, 
Um, there's another fascinating character, O'Halloran. It's another person lovely guy. he's downplaying. Yeah, yeah. no, he's uh, he's a lovely guy. You know, there's uh, Jake the Snake. You know, I'll be doing a, a convention <laughs> with him uh, in Longview, Texas, this weekend. Uh, well, Warwick Davis is out a lot. Sure. Uh, um, I'm trying to think of some other of the Superman too. Uh, oh well, Sarah Douglas was out. Uh, did I say that? Yeah, she was. Uh, I saw her. Um, in Providence, and mm. I, actually, when I was when I was shooting Superman two, sh- she and I were uh, sharing the limousines, uh, so we we get picked up together and driven out and then driven back. Uh, so I got oh. to know her pretty well, and she married a guy, uh, John of Missouri, who, uh, uh, or no, Richard uh, Parmentier, who who was an American guy over there, who was part of our circle. Yeah, um, a lot of Star Wars act. Yeah. Now we're getting we're getting a lot of the. Uh, Guys that are doing the creature effects in Star Wars that are that are coming out when they're not working, and they're a fascinating group of guys. Um, uh, Derek Arnold, uh, Canadian, uh, does creature effects. Paul Casey, who's uh, a movement specialist who does a lot of coordination, you know, for the uh, puppeteering and what have you. Uh, Lee Towersley, who uh, who designed one of the new uh, R2D2s, he's now there. You know, on the circuit, uh, Brian Hemming, who did BB-8. Uh, oh. Another guy uh, I just met, uh, Aid Cook. So those four or five guys are doing the circuit. And I'll tell you, if anybody's out there that wants to really get a good sense of some of the really wonderful work that's being done in the new Star Wars films, uh, from the inside, uh, they're very... Uh, Conversant. They're not as constrained as, as some of the more major stars are in, mm-hmm. in being able to talk about, you know, what's going on in the films and how they're being made. And uh, it's just fascinating to hear them, uh, you know, discuss how the technology is changing uh, in, in, in this, this new emerging field of what, what they call CFX, creature effects, you know, bringing in actors, movement artists, mime, puppeteers, uh, people who do uh, animatronics, uh, you know, it's fascinating. Really, really fascinating. I can only imagine. And it, the world is changing so much. What you're able to do and the the speed at which it can be done. Yeah, it, uh, I, I can only imagine, you know, to be on the fly on that wall uh, must be amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And I mean, it's uh, the conversations that we get into kind of offline, uh, you know, over a beer, or, you know, when we're traveling to and from, uh, you know, in the airports and what have you. I mean, it's, yeah, it really is a window into uh, filmmaking and where it's going. I think that what will happen with those guys is I think they're going, they're going, they are going to be the Jim Hensons of the next generation. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I'm serious because, you know, everybody's drawing upon their skill sets to do these when they want to do these creatures, uh, they're coming to them. So it's not just star Wars. They're, they're doing other things as well. And they, they're also, they're, they're so very skilled and, um, conversant about, uh, about what they're doing and where, where their, their craft is going that, uh, they're, they're going to end up probably putting some sort of film together and people they'll, they'll direct, produce and write something. Don't know what it's going to be, but it'll be uh, you know something. So, uh, and they're they're young guys. I mean, from my perspective, they're guys in their late thirties, early forties. So you know they've got uh, they've got twenty, thirty years ahead of them. Who knows where where they're going to take it? 
Oh, because oh, that yeah, means I'm still that, young. All right. <laughs> it's good to know. It's, it's good to, to know my kids are wrong and I'm still young. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, if you're in your in your late twenties, early thirties, or early forties, you know, you're you're you, you got you know a generation ahead to to hone your craft and uh, pull your network together and put your deals together. And these guys these guys are going that way. You know, hats off to them. John, uh, about how many conventions do you do every year? Oh, I think about between 10 or 12, something like that. 10 or 12. Uh, you know, it gets a little, you know, squirrely if it's over one a month, but occasionally a month will come up and I'm doing two in a month, and then there'll be a, a month when I'm not. You know, I had two in January. But, yeah, I've, you know, so far since Christmas, uh, you know, I've been to Albuquerque, Laredo, Dallas, Amarillo, Vichy, France, um, Awesome Con in D.C., uh, Longview, I'll be going next week, Jackson, Mississippi, next next month. Yeah, so do, it goes. Do, do you have a chance to really enjoy the places you go, or is it sort of you get to go to the hotel, go to the convention, go to the hotel, then come back? It varies. You know, in the case of, the case of Vichy, my, my wife and I, uh, uh, they got us down on, on Thursday, I think it was. So we had a little time to to mess around on Friday before things got got going. That was, I, you know, that was that's a real interesting little town. And then we uh, we went back to Paris and spent four days uh, there, just uh, chilling and uh, sightseeing. Yeah, I mean, sometimes if you're if the the convention has you there, say for half a day on Friday. You'll fly in on Thursday, and uh, then you got you know uh, the morning of Friday to uh, to mosey on around. Uh, in the case of Amarillo, for example, um, we had some time. Uh, I think we all came in on Thursday night, and on Friday we uh, cruised around and went to Cadillac Ranch. You know where they had the Cadillacs stuck in the desert. That was kind of fun. Everybody took a lot of pictures there and goofing up, and then. Uh, yeah, we went around and checked out the coffee houses and uh, played the jukeboxes and whatnot. Uh, so, yeah, I got a good feeling for Amarillo and the people. I like to do that, and I think most people do. Um, uh, connect with the fans or even beyond the fans and get a sense of place. Uh, that's, you know, that's one of the, the perks of doing this. Uh, and the fans are so welcoming. I mean, they're so pleased to have us there that... Uh, Really, we're, we're frequently handed the keys of the city, and uh, we all want to rise to the occasion and, and kind of get a sense and give back because, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. Nobody would be doing it if they weren't, you know, enjoying it. Sure, sure. So, uh, is, true story, as the day that we're recording this, uh, I have uh, three kids. I have uh, an eight-year-old son, and I have uh, twins that are six, and uh, <laughs> had the TV on. And uh, Empire Strikes Back was on TV, and uh, my daughter saw it for the first time, and uh, she said, "It's like, who's the brown guy with all the fur?" It's like, "That's Chewbacca, honey." It looked like I made a, a fan was made because she was just uh, hypnotized by the movie, and uh, yeah. so so we got to talk about uh, Empire Strikes Back, a movie that Chewie's like, my uh, favorite too, Char. You had a great role in that, and it was uh, just an yeah. excellent scene at the beginning. And uh, you know, um, and you said you were on the set for four weeks. Is, is am I remembering that right? Yep, I was signed up uh, to play a rebel pilot uh, for two days' work on a daily rate, so it was very generous. And 
you know, I uh, when I went down to Elstree the first day, I arrived and they said, "Hey, um, you're going to be Dak, uh, Luke Skywalker's co-pilot." And I said, "Oh man, that's just great! Yeah, thinking people are going to remember Dak pretty well." And they said, "Well, now that's the good news. The bad news is you're already dead." <laughs> <laughs> And uh, oh shucks. Well, okay, but uh, yeah, it was. I was expecting to do two two days of work, but there were all sorts of hassles that they were having with scheduling and uh, technical issues, uh, trying to get the uh, you know the lights, uh, you know uh, the, the the color tones, uh, you know correct uh, across the the blue matte screen that was behind where they were shooting the close ups. Um, you know, among many things. And, you know, when, when, when a film goes off the rails in terms of schedule, then everything gets jacked around. And um, so it turned out that I was to get all the stuff done that they needed, uh, close-ups and all the various things. Uh, there was a case where they, they, it just went completely pear-shaped. And uh, so I ended up showing up every day for four weeks, sometimes standing around, sometimes getting a little bit shot and then standing around. So I was paid extremely handsomely because instead of getting a weekly rate, I was on a daily rate. And that was part of the reason why I ended up doing uh, a couple of days work as Boba Fett because, you know, hey, we're paying this guy Morton to stand around and Jeremy has got a chance of uh, doing another film for two days I had worked on several films with the first assistant and second assistant, so they knew I was a team player. I was Jeremy's size, so I just filled in for him as Boba Fett for two days and got a whole nother take of, you know, what was going on in Empire Strikes Back, uh, doing the scene with Billy Dee Williams and, and uh, David Prowse, John um, Hollis, uh, Lobot. So, um, yeah. Yeah, that's that's how that came about. As a result, I got to see a lot of stuff being filmed and uh, got a real sense of the, that that whole vibe that was was going on. I had lunch with Mark Hamill every day. Got to know him extremely well because we were on the same schedule essentially. And because I knew so many people by that time, I'd worked on, you know, a number of films with the folks that uh, George brought in as his uh, crew. Uh, so I'd, I'd been with these guys in Spain and uh, and Holland and in Superman 2, the first the first part, the first shooting in Superman 2, they were they were involved in that as well. So you know it was just like I was saying with the conventions. So, you know this was the family coming back together. So um, you know you were given the privilege. You know as long as you're a team player, it's kind of like hey John, you're a go over and sit around and watch them shoot this. This this scene this is going to be really interesting. Uh, oh, okay, great. As long as you didn't sit on any electrician's equipment uh, and you stayed in the wings, if you were, as they say, a team player. Uh, you got a lot of you got a lot of entree. It was good. Now, when you yeah. said that they told you that when you got the role that uh, the bad news is you're dead already, was it that they had already filmed the special effects scenes of the snow speeder? Yeah, I think um, I think those guys came back from. Uh, Norway previous week, so they were fresh, fresh back in the UK from shooting uh, scenes in Finza, and they were very. I mean, it was re- they had a blizzard up there, and so uh, yeah, the the Norwegian extra took the bullet for me. <laughs> yeah, the, so I was already dead. 
<laughs> and do you only get this, you know, you, as you said, you originally you weren't, this, you didn't even know you were going to have this part. Do you only get the script for your scenes and nothing else? Yeah, they're called sides, and uh, that's that's generally the rule for uh, almost every film if you're, a, you know, a small under five role player. And, of course, in the case of Star Wars, it was, you know, very tightly you know, controlled. So uh, very few people got, uh, well, you know, nobody got got the full script <laughs> except, uh, you know, Hamill and the main stars. Hmm. I think Garrick Hagen told me that he had, you know, playing Big Starklighter in the first uh, Star Wars, the uh, A New Hope, he actually had the full script. Um, but uh, that was before they were really concerned about uh, uh, security. Uh, and they didn't even know what knows, Star Wars was at that time. I, yeah, I yeah, and as everybody first, knows, so. nobody nobody took it seriously and didn't really think it was going to amount to much of anything anyway. So there was no need to really worry about, you know, uh, security because nobody cared. <laughs> right. Now, you have on uh, on IMDb, uh, your nickname is actually listed as Dak. Your Twitter includes the name Dak. So aside from, you know, having a, a speaking part in, in the second Star Wars movie ever made, you know, Talk a bit about, you know, your, you know, sort of, you know, uh, embracing of that and, you know, what the character specifically, you know, what do you attribute his popularity to? Because, I mean, for me, uh, we mentioned the beginning of the show where I said, you know, some people say it's the greatest movie. It's, personally, it is my favorite movie ever made. I think it's the most, it's the, uh, it's the only perfect movie ever made. Uh, so, you know, when I was a kid, my Luke X-Wing action figure, because I already had a Luke action figure, my Luke X-Wing action figure was either Wedge or Dak, depending on what mood I was in. So <laughs> even as a little kid, I was already a Dak fan. Uh, so, you know, when you, you know, when you meet the fans at, at, at the conventions, you know, what, what's, what's your sense of that? Yeah, I mean, bringing it up to, to date, uh, I mean, I have to be honest with you, I, uh, when I was, you know, living my other life, uh, I didn't really give Star Wars much thought until they did the re-releases and then mm -hmm. then suddenly it came back into my life with a vengeance and so I think it is fair to say that uh, you know starting after the re-releases you know I I, I I made it when I realized what what this Star Wars phenomenon was all about and what my role in Star Wars was all about that, that I, I, I eagerly sought to live into the character of Dak because, you know, that's what the fans expected. You know, the first time I gave a speech uh, uh, as Dak for the opening of the uh, preview nights uh, in, in Baltimore, uh, I was there with my family and... Uh, my daughter, my youngest daughter, was having her sixth <laughs> birthday, and so we were all there together with sitting in the back. And after I came, came off the stage, all these people were yelling at me, and I sat down in my chair in the middle of this den. One of my cousins leaned over and said, Hey, John, what, what are they all yelling at you? And I, I, I said, I, I have no, no clue. And this young man who was probably about 17 was eavesdropping right in front of me. And he leaned back over uh, his shoulder and with disgust said, your lines. <laughs> well, uh, I realized that, well, no, I can't really be cavalier about this. And, and, uh, and let's be honest. I mean, a lot of actors, uh, you know, we don't remember our lines that much, sure. or, uh, especially if we got a lot. But it was evident to me at that point, like, hey, you know, people are expecting you to, to be an ambassador for this 
and you know they're paying good money uh you know for your autograph or your time uh you know you 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 got to take this seriously and so i uh very quickly got onto that now when i first started doing the uh conventions at that period of time i was working pretty assiduously in dc i was not comfortable in uh in taking uh you know money from children you know, for my autograph, and so uh, in those days, they were you'd, you'd be paid a, uh, an appearance fee, and then you'd charge for your pictures, and so I said, no, I want to give this away, and then the promoters were saying, no, 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 you can't do that, that's bad, you know, that's not going to look for good for all the rest of the actors, so I said, okay, well, you, you, get, you get me your, your preferred uh, children's charity, and have that person there sitting next to me taking the money. And so I started raising money and for all my appearances for things like Make-A-Wish and the Children's Cancer Society of California and yada, yada, yada. I did that for, you know, until about 2003, and then I got real busy in D.C. And then uh, uh, in 2010, I came back into it, and it was at that point when I was sort of retiring from a lot of the D.C. consulting, and then I figured, you know, hey, uh, you know, I, I guess uh, I, I should get with the program and look at this as a, as an income stream. And so uh, that's how I got into in, into you know, that side of it. And so now I'm just, you know, like everybody else, it's, it's part of my revenue source. Now to your point about the, the, uh, the, the popularity of DAC, obviously that, that, uh, uh, has always kind of perplexed me, but I think I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting close to an answer. I've discovered that a lot of the people who are really, really into DAC are second sons because mm. they're the younger brothers. I am a younger and brother. <laughs> there you go. So you're out there in the playground when you're very young, and your older brother is saying, hey, come on, let's play Star Wars, man. Okay, I'm going to be you, Luke, and you could be that. Okay. So you, know, you can't argue with the older brother. The older brother is going to going to be Luke every time. And so I started asking people. I said, hey, you know, um, you're, you're into Dak? Oh, yeah. I can't believe I'm meeting you. You know, you have no idea... Are you? Do you have an older brother? <laughs> and about about uh, you know six or seven out of ten. That's that's yeah yeah. How did you how did you get us? <laughs> so that's one one example. Um, another example is this wonderful guy Jonas uh, Sutomo, who's the new Chewbacca. Um, I was with him at a convention uh, in Washington uh, several months ago. Awesome con, and he was there, and he was terribly excited. It was it was almost embarrassing to meet me. He couldn't wait, and and uh, he said, "I I'm so excited." And he went, you know, he wanted his picture taken and all this kind of stuff, and so he did. And um, lovely guy. He's taller than than Peter Mayhew. I think he's six four, seven four, and Peter in his glory was about seven two. Anyway, Jonas had evidently been asked who his favorite character was in Star Wars at a convention up in Toronto, and he said, well, it's Dak. And so, uh, you know, he, he was really excited that, you know, two or three weeks later, he gets to meet Dak. And uh, I said, well, you know, what was that all about? And he said, well, I, uh, you know, I, I felt that Dak was just a model of, uh, you know, uh, youthful idealism, uh, 
you know, with a sense of service and sacrifice for something greater than self, you know, your country or your fellow man and that kind of stuff. And, and that's the kind of feeling I have towards my life and, and what I'm doing. That's what everybody should sort of feel. And I thought, well, that's, that's an interesting take. But the real kicker to all of this was I did a uh, one of the Star Wars celebrations in uh, Europe, in Essen, in 2013, which was a long uh, weekend. I think we started on Thursday morning and finished on Sunday afternoon. Uh, so that was, you know, fans for four days. And towards the end of the Sunday, uh, a very tall uh, kind of Ichabod Crane type uh, German guy in his late 30s comes shambling up to my uh, my booth. And he says, oh, Dak, I can't, I, you know, I'm so excited to meet you. You know, I wanted to meet you all my life. And, you know, you had such an impact on me. And um, I was a little punchy, and but I didn't, you know, I, what I was thinking is I was re- responding to him with this. Oh, yeah. Okay. So what is it about Dak that, that rings your bell, fella? <laughs> I didn't say that, of course. I said, no, well, tell me, tell me what. You know, why is this? Well, I'd be happy to. I was in university studying civil engineering, not knowing what I wanted to do with my life. When I saw Star Wars, uh, The Empire Strikes Back, and I heard you say that line, right now I feel like I want to take on the Empire all by myself. And I just, in a flash, I just said, hey, man, that's what I want to do. I want to take on the Empire all by myself. Well, I decided uh, that I was going to take my civil engineering seriously. I went back to my city up in Schleswig Holstein and was, you know, uh, 30 or 40,000, and, and I got a job in the waste treatment facility. I said to the, 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 the administrators, I think I've got a way of making this waste treatment facility work a little better. And they said, oh, yeah? They said, I presented my design. And they said, oh, okay, well, all right, you go ahead and do that, and we'll let you do that. And I, I, I changed the, the engineering of the waste treatment facility, and I said, hey, you guys, you did a really good job. You're now going to manage this. And um, now I've decided that I'm going to change the, uh, the waste treatment facility again, and I'm going to have it so it, it generates electricity so that we can have someday our whole town taken off or at least partly off one of the German grids. Uh, we're going to produce our own electricity with this. I am taking on the empire all by myself, and I'm like, holy smoke. There <laughs> that that was. is so powerful. What an incredible there story. There it was. <laughs> wow. I, I was so moved by this guy. I, I said, I'm going to write you up in uh, StarWars.com uh, you know, as part of my report on, on on Essen. And so, yeah, if you go to the StarWars.com, you'll see that at the end I say, hey, look, there was this German guy, and this is what he said. The important point of that is that we are ambassadors uh, for that franchise. Um, and it could be for anything. I mean, in Superman or Flash Gordon or what have you, but there, there's something about Star Wars, at least in my case, that most people associate me with that, regardless of whatever else I did in my theatrical and filmic life or anything else. Um, and so it's my job to live into my care and to take seriously the opportunity to, uh, to try to help motivate people to go out and be creative and to uh, realize their dreams and to make a difference yeah, for, the, for the better. And I can't tell you how, uh, how, how, how wonderful uh, an opportunity that is, you know, for a guy that's getting to be my age. 
And I think a lot of the people in Star Wars, the men and women that I've met, uh, there's something about what George and Gary Kurtz in particular, I, I give great credit to Gary Kurtz as part of the, whatever they were doing with that uh, conception, uh, they, they, they created an environment for human beings to get together and, um, and, and to, you know, um, sell, uh, sell a great idea, the force. Uh, to make things better, and you, you, and the fans bought into that, and they're giving it back. I mean, you know, you hear a lot of the folder roll about uh, this, that, and the other with the new new series or the uh, or the, the prequels or whatever. But generally speaking, you know, it is a very positive force uh, that brings people together all over the planet. It's wonderful, and people yeah, are doing yeah. things like creating, you know, waste treatment facilities that are, you know. Uh, you know, moving sustainability forward, which we got to do. Research for this interview, John, I, I saw, uh, I learned about something called Star Wars in the Classroom that I read you were involved yeah, in. Yeah. I had never heard of it. That ties into everything you've been talking about Absolutely. the last few minutes. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Well, those guys, those guys are really, uh, you know, doing great things. Uh, they're, they're, they're using Star Wars, if you will, as a, as a kind of a toolkit uh, to help uh, kids, uh, you know, get into whatever they're getting into, whether it's uh, science or English, you know, or, or you know, uh, what, what are, you know, history. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, they're, they're an organization that was uh, set up uh, by uh, three or four guys originally to work with teachers to help the teachers uh, network with each other for finding ways to... Um, you know, help motivate their kids to take seriously what they were learning in school. They brought in people like me and Vanessa Marshall, you know, and Vanessa's just a wonderful woman, uh, and a terrific ambassador for the uh, for Star Wars. Uh, she's lovely, lovely gal uh, out there in L.A. Uh, she was Hera um, in uh, Star Wars Rebels and uh, very committed. Oh, okay. It just seems like it's such a, s- a special franchise to be associated with uh, and the love for these. And it's not just the movies and it's not even just the original trilogy, but um, the, the love that people have for the comics, the uh, cartoons, the uh, all the other the novels. I, I've had friends who are just huge into the novels, and um, you know, to be part of it in any way, shape, or form seems so special. Um, but it's also heartwarming that um, you know you and it sounds like so many other people of, who have been lucky enough and uh, have been talented enough and have all the great uh, opportunities to be part of this take it seriously and realize that uh, you know this is Star Wars is uh, something that so many people. Uh, in you know my generation and generations following mine, um, love and is so important too. It, it's great that it seems sounds like you um, <laughs> appreciate the responsibility of being part of something that people love, and uh, it's great to hear. I think you'll find that with just about everybody. I, I, I can't I can't think of uh, any person that I have met uh, since doing the convention circuit uh, that hasn't been humbled by you know the position that having been part of Star Wars. They are now in, and uh, you know they take it very seriously, and they uh, joyously too. It's not a burden. It's like, hey, we're going out there, and we're going to meet the fans, and we're going to share, uh, you know, our experiences uh, to reinforce the love that they have to go out and and serve their communities with the 501st or the Mandalorian Mercs or the Rebel Legion. I mean, uh, all those are charitable groups that 
are out there doing good work for Make-A-Wish and, uh, you know, kids that are, uh, you know, in, in cancer wards or what have you, and they go dressing up and bringing, lighting, lighting up those children's faces. I mean, uh, these are men and women of all ages that are out there, uh, you know, because of Star Wars. Uh, it's, it's, it's quite amazing. All right. Well, Eric, I got to give you a chance. <laughs> Eric, I got to give you a chance before we, because there's there's so much more to talk with Mr. Morton about. But I, 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 you have any last? I think you've been waiting for this for a long time. Any last Star Wars questions to ask? Star Wars? No. I, my, my, I only have one more question actually left left for John, and I, I want to bring it back to Flash Gordon uh, for it. I'm always fascinated when. Um, in movies, when an actor plays a character who has their name, and your character's name actually is John in Flash Gordon, uh, and I'm always wondering, you know, is that complete coincidence, or did they name you John because your name is? John? I think it was probably because my name was John. Uh, um, <laughs> you know, it wasn't. I, it wasn't in the script. I mean, I was the airline pilot, and then Purnell was the co-pilot. Uh, so, yeah. So it might, I mean, his name is like... Joel. <laughs> His name is Jim in the movie, though, so he did not get his real first name used. I, I, I haven't got an answer for you, Eric. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you don't have to ask Hodges. <laughs> You're not just an actor who's been associated with these iconic movies. I was left, Before we started recording, I found out uh, we knew that you were a musician, an accomplished guitarist, and you actually shared you were in a jug band with Loudon Wainwright III. And one of my favorite <laughs> songs of all time is the song Daughter by uh, Mr. Wainwright. Uh, that was a song from uh, that he recorded for the movie Knocked Up, and I'm just fascinated yeah. by that, that you knew Mr. Wainwright uh, way back when. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, one of his early songs uh, was called School Days, uh, when he sings something to the effect of in Delaware when I was younger. That was all about the school where we attended in Delaware in Middletown called St. Andrews, where they filmed Dead Poets Society. There was a group of us that were musicians, and uh, Loudy was really a star already then, 14, 15, 16. And so we used to gather and we'd, we'd uh, you know, play our guitars, and then when we'd have dances or opportunities to perform, uh, we would be there, uh, you know, as a group. And uh, I was playing guitar and, and harmonica, and Loudy was really the kind of the front man. And we had a guy playing a washtub bass and a jug. And in those days, uh, you know, everybody was influenced by Bob Dylan. But uh, there was also a, a great uh, music scene going on in Boston and Cambridge and uh, Greenwich Village. Uh, and there were two uh, jug bands that uh, we sort of adopted uh, their material, Jim Queskin uh, and the Eleven Dozen Jug Band. They were Boston groups, but they they were playing the village. And there were Laddie was from Bedford, uh, New York, and then there were a couple other guys that were from around there. So uh, we had access on the weekends to uh, the Greenwich Village scene. Uh, so Gertie's Folk City, and you know people would come back with uh, hearing this, that, and the other. But in the case of the Jim Quest and Jug Band, that was we pulled a lot of material from them. And uh, Maria Moldauer, then was Maria. The motto was one of the leads, you know, the the singers there. And, of course, everybody had the hots for her. So, uh, you know, Loudy, Loudy was, um, was really, you know, quite a talent. I mean, he was already a star as a teenager, and you kind of knew that he was going to go all the way. And, um, yeah, um, he... Uh, 
I tell you, he played Falstaff in you know, the senior production, uh, Henry the Fourth, Part One. And honestly, here you had this 18-year-old, 19-year-old kid playing this old man with you know pillowcases in his uh, in his uh, in his costume. But I mean, he 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 nailed it. I mean, the guy immensely talented. At a very early time in my life, uh, you know, I was able to work with a person who was of such prodigious natural talent that. Uh, you know, I had a sense that, oh, gosh, you know, uh, uh, this is kind of something I'd like to do. And, uh, you know, uh, he, he, he went all the way. Uh, he went to Carnegie Mellon, dropped out after a year because he didn't want anybody. You know, he just figured, hey, you know, these guys can't teach me anything. And so he went off to Haight Asbury, lived uh, with the hippies for a bit, and then came back and then was able to get his first record uh, sometime in the late 60s. Yeah, I yeah. see him periodically. Um, you know, we're, we're still in touch. But, uh, yeah, every time he comes down to the Rams head. So if he's in town, I see him then. But that's what really inspired me to... Um, to get into show business is, uh, you know, when I was done uh, with my school schooling and serving in the Navy, I went out to London and started there, started singing as a solo artist. Uh, for a time, I was with a partner who was, uh, who was also a guitarist. And we, we, we sang together, but I ended up being a soloist and was discovered uh, by a theater director who said, hey, have you ever acted? And, yeah, and um, I need an American accent uh, and a guy who can play a guitar, and if I ever get uh, this uh, play together, would you do it? And I said, absolutely. So a year or so later, he, he called me up, and uh, uh, this this play, The Lady of the Tiger, got put on at the Richmond Orange Tree uh, just outside of London and transferred directly to the West End. And so that got me my equity card, and uh, an agent, and I was off and running, and the agent said, well, you're not really a stage actor, are you? And I said, no, not really, but I think you can do well in film. She was the one that started putting me up for film parts, and the first one I got was to play Robert Redford's Chaplin in A Bridge Too Far. That's where I met John Ratzenberger and some other guys. Tony Forrest, who was the, uh, uh, we aren't the droids, those aren't the droids we're looking for. Uh, he, he was in Star Wars, the first one. And so once you get into one film, then that's, that's your break, and that set me going in a sequence from there. So, yeah, yeah. Loudon Wainwright and the music and guitar playing started me off on my my career. Well, and it ties into um, you know your love of music, and uh, you are actually an author. You've uh, was it published three or four, uh, four books? I'm working on or... a fourth. Yeah, soon to be completed. But uh, yeah, I've got three three actually in the can you know, that are out there. And, and the one that the... you mentioned that was uh, that I was so thrilled with was uh, the Duke Ellington book, which really was just a wonderful book to work on and that's the one that's uh, actually circulating now as a, as a screenplay and hopefully will be turned into a film we're working on it right now and trying to put a deal together so Mr. Moore, you've just done a bit of everything you've done it all very well um it's just a just an amazing and I, I, I mentioned this to you before just a, an amazing well-lived life and uh you, you you had that great run of movies and was there a particular reason? I think the, the last movie in your IMDb was um, uh, the, the second Superman, uh, if I'm remembering right. Was there you sort of going back to stagecraft, or you just was there a particular reason that you sort of backed away from the movie career? First of all, that IMDb uh, list is uh, is wildly inaccurate. Uh, yeah. you know, I, it, it doesn't include you know a lot of the films that I was in: uh, Cuba, The Shining, Folks. 
I was in a BBC series called Oppenheimer with Sam Waterston, and there were there's several others on there that I that I I didn't do. I don't know where they got the idea that I was that I did them. Really? <laughs> oh man! Yeah, I'm trying to remember. It's not Blade Runner. It's uh, Ro- uh, Gumball Alley. Don't, right. Don't know what Gumball Rally. Uh, yeah. Don't know anything about that. Uh, there, probably, there might have been a John Morton in that, but that was not me. And at one time, rather embarrassingly, uh, I was listed in, as uh, playing some guy in Coed Fever, which was a you know a quadruple X-rated film. It caused great embarrassment to my daughters when they discovered that. <laughs> so uh, yeah. No, but uh, I'll tell you what, what happens. Uh, I guess this is a sort of a, a, a salutary lesson that, you know, you su- sometimes you succeed through your failures. Um, while I was finishing Star Wars, uh, I had uh, this film called The Operator that I'd written um, that was optioned uh, by a producer in London. And uh, um, so we were... Uh, set to go off to Los Angeles and she and her husband went off and uh, I did the deal with them and um, it was right after Star Wars and so uh, through the balance of 1979 and then early 1980 when I was working on Oppenheimer with the BBC uh, we were putting that film together and Patricia Casey was her name she's still active in in LA Uh, she got Stephen Frears to direct and she had uh, Dennis Christopher from uh, the bicycle film Breaking Away to be the star and it was my screenplay and she managed to put it uh, to Orion Pictures uh, and so we had the deal with Orion and so I told my agent uh, in London I said you know my wife and I are wanting to go back to the States I got this film deal you know I'll, I'll be back in a couple of years uh, so uh, you know keep keep me warm and uh, she said well I think darling you know actors shouldn't try to be writers I said but, hey Maggie I got a film deal and she said well you know good luck to you well unfortunately uh, we burned our bridges in London we got rid of our house in Putney and uh, went off to the US and uh, that film deal went south uh unfortunately uh in in early 81 hollywood was shut down by a writers and directors strike it looked like they weren't going to be producing films for uh, a long time and so the option was not picked renewed and so the money was running out and i was left high and dry in, in la and really was not in a position to go back to london because, uh, you know, didn't have anywhere to live, and it was, you know, there it was. So we went to New York. I started writing plays. Uh, the films that you talked about uh, with Star Wars and what have you uh, hadn't come out yet, and so I didn't have uh, stuff that I could, uh, you know, I could really, you know, I didn't have a showreel or anything like that. Was, you know, I, I just wasn't, I wasn't set up to really promote myself as an actor in New York City. And one of the things about New York City was, uh, you know, in London, there were maybe five John Mortons uh, going mm-hmm. up for the same part. In New York City, there was about 500 John Mortons. And so the odds were pretty bad. And so I, uh, I started focusing on playwriting. And I wrote a couple of plays, one of which was produced in 82, and another one uh, which didn't get produced in New York, but was subsequently produced in Washington. By that time, you know, I wasn't able to, you know, pull a deal together. So I had to segue into public relations and then decided I don't want to do that in New York. And so I'll come down and kind of go fishing in the waters that I was more familiar with in Washington and then kind of got into uh, journalism in D.C. 
And when the play in Washington called Hubris uh, didn't get picked up after it, it, it opened, uh, I promised my wife, look, you know, I know we got a we got a child now, and I got to get serious. So uh, I'm just going to have to put uh, show business to bed and uh, focus on journalism and, and supporting the family. So, you know, uh, I'd like to be able to say that one went from success to success, but that's not, you know, that isn't the way it works. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, sometimes you succeed through your failures. <laughs> well, you know, in retrospect, so it was a success. Yeah, it's been an interesting run. And uh, there was a couple of things I did in D.C. that I'm extremely proud about, uh, particularly putting together this, uh, this group that uh, did a Homeland Security report um, you know, which was, uh, was, you know, I'm very proud of that and, uh, kind of chronicled the, uh, the birth of the Department of Homeland Security and, uh, Governor Tom Ridge wrote a wonderful introduction to the book and, uh, you know, it made a difference. Um, yeah. so that's what kept me real busy and off the convention circuit, uh, for that period between, uh, 2003 and 2010. I was tremendously moved by, uh, the inadequacies of uh, the Hurricane Katrina preparedness and response. Uh, mm. It's that aspect of Homeland Security that I really focused on. And uh, so part of what I do on the circuit is uh, uh, some, of the, some of the people uh, know, know that part of my background. I'm tremendously supportive of the firefighters and paramedics and law enforcement and uh, guardsmen and women who uh, who are involved in emergency management in, uh, in their communities. And, uh, and many, many uh, people in the 501st, you know, the garrison in the Star Wars costume clubs, they're actually firefighters and uh, paramedics and nurses and, uh, and vets and, you know, guardsmen and women. Uh, so, you know, there's a rapport I have with those folks, and I like to support them on the things they do. It all has come together. Yeah, it's worked out, Brad. Mr. Martin, this has been uh, this has been an amazing conversation. We really appreciate you giving us all this time and being so generous with your time. If uh, someone wants to find out what conventions you're going to be at or where they can see you for an appearance, uh, where should they go? Well, I wouldn't recommend going to my website. I know you mentioned that, but that's that's kind of a disaster. I haven't done anything with it. I haven't got it managed very well. So, uh, yeah, there's a, the bulletin board called Star Wars Actor Appearances. dot com. I, I don't know the correct title, but you can Google it, and uh, that's good for for anybody that's uh, on the circuit, you know, any of the actors and what have you. And it's fairly comprehensive and uh, and pretty accurate. So. I would recommend to anybody wanting to follow any of their the actors that appeared in the film or anybody that had has anything to do with Star Wars is to go to Star Wars Actor Appearances. Uh, I think it's something like that, SWActorAppearances.com. But, you know, if you Google it, you'll find it, and it's huge, and it's very up-to-date and current. Uh, sometimes the Boba Fett fan club, um, you know, has stuff on Jeremy Bullock and me and Daniel Logan and Dickie Beer and others that are associated with that character, and they're fairly current. Uh, they let people know. But I, I, between those two, those are probably the best best sources. And certainly, as I say, for anybody anybody that has anything to do with Star Wars, that, that actorappearances.com is, uh, is a good resource, and it's worldwide, you know, so it, it covers uh, South America, Australia, Europe. United States, Canada. 
Yeah, it's good. Well, we recommend everyone check it out. We recommend everyone say hi to you at the conventions. Uh, gosh, Eric, do you have anything else to say to Mr. Morton before we uh, before we let him get back to his evening? Uh, I, you know, I just I thank you for your time, and and uh, I've, I've got to get a time machine and go back to 1980-81 and, and tell six-year-old me someday <laughs> you're you're, you're going to talk to Dak. Uh, God bless you. <laughs> uh, that's great. Well, look, everybody have a great Memorial Day, and uh, yeah, may the force be with you. Attention listeners, you can follow us on Twitter at Flash Gordon Pod and join the conversation on Facebook in the Flash Gordon Minute Listener's Vortex. Stay tuned for our next thrilling episode of Flash Gordon Minute. Somebody blind Everything She thinks Blows her tiny mind 